Bienvenidos. This is a podcast that explores Latinx media and culture in its many forms. I am Dr. Rojo Robles. And I am Dr. Rebecca Elsalois. And we are Latinx and Latin American Studies professors at Baruch College in New York City. In this podcast, we will analyze Latinx film, television, literature, art, and cultures. We will consider how these works are perceived, analyze them, and investigate the real-world reflections and implication of that work on Latinx cultures in the U.S. and beyond. Welcome to Latinx Visions. Bienvenidas, bienvenidos, bienvenides. Welcome back, everyone. Today we're sharing a conversation we had with scholar and cultural activist Dr. Lisbeth de la Cruz Santana. Liz also just happens to be our newest Baruch College Black and Latino Studies colleague. We recorded this interview in person with Liz on October 28, 2023 at Baruch College. In previous seasons, we have spoken with Dr. Keisha Allen and PhD candidate Joseph Caceres, who are also BLS colleague, and we hope to be able to speak with other colleagues going forward. Before diving into the interview itself, we'll share information on De La Cruz Santana's scholarship, activism, and other projects, broadly speaking, and then we'll share her more in-depth perspective with you all. After the interview has concluded, we'll share our thoughts on the conversation and how adding Liz to BLS has really helped strengthen our department. Dr. Lisbeth de la Cruz Santana is an assistant professor of Chicano, Chicana, Chicanx Studies in the Black and Latino Studies Department at Baruch College in New York. She earned her PhD in Latin American Literature and Cultures with a focus on human rights from the University of California, Davis. She is a cultural worker and interdisciplinary qualitative Latinx public scholar who studies contemporary migration processes. Her current research focuses on childhood arrival migrants to the United States. Her academic craft centers indigenous and feminist pedagogies and methodologies to acknowledge different forms of accessible, reciprocal knowledge-making that is responsive to community needs. She engages with digital storytelling, testimonial literature, diaspora studies, and 20th and 21st century Mexican, Mexican-American, and Chicana, Chicano, Chicanx literature and culture. Well, at UC Davis, De La Cruz Santana received the UC President's Pre-Professoriate Fellowship, Mellon Public Scholars Fellowships, and the Cornell School of Criticism and Theory Fellowship. She was also the recipient of awards from Imagining America, the National Humanities Center, and the UC Humanities Research Initiative. Lisbeth is the coordinator of the Playas de Tijuana Mural Project, an interactive mural on the westernmost point of the U.S.-Mexico border, which documents the stories of deported childhood arrivals through digital storytelling. Liz's other digital humanities projects include the Leave No One Behind mural project and the Documented Dreams Without Borders digital storytelling project. Additionally, she participated as a researcher for the Humanizing Deportation project. De La Cruz Santana studies how migrants who entered the U.S. as minors theorize illegality, deportability, criminalization, and deportation. She focuses on the politics of belonging and emotionality. The work that she engages in is highly collaborative, multimodal, reciprocity-focused, and social justice-oriented. Her practices and projects intend to engage various publics within and beyond the university. 
It was around migration and coming of age between Compton, California and the rural ranch of La Alcaparosa, Jalisco that sparked the La Cruz Santana's interest in approaching migrants as knowledge producers whose thinking bolsters and add nuance to existing scholarly consensus that can challenge academic orthodoxies. Her scholarship has been published in the Humanizing Deportation Project, Building a Community Archive of Migrant Feelings, Migrant Knowledge, published in 2022, and in Critical Storytelling from the Borderlands, En La Línea, also published in 2022. She has an upcoming chapter in Reflexiones Coyunturales sobre Migraciones Contemporáneas en Contextos de Pandemia, which is due out later this year. Bienvenida, Lisbeth. We're happy to have you here with us today at Latin Exhibitions. Thank you for joining us. No, yeah, thank you so much. It's exciting. Um, kind of like side note, if I could share. Um, mm -hmm. When I was looking into applying to the department, for me, it was like my first instinct is to see what they did. Mm -hmm. And I, I mean by what they did, it's like digital humanities or like public, you know, um, speaking kind of things or access to the public and the podcast was it and i was like oh yeah. let me apply like it seems like they're like ahead yeah. <laughs> you know <laughs> in that part yeah oh that's awesome i'm glad we could have uh helped you along that journey <laughs> <laughs> it, we've been looking forward to this conversation all semester mm -hmm. so um we figure we'll just get right into it so to get us started could you tell us a little bit about your background and your journey into the field of chicano chicana chicanx studies and migration studies and what inspired you to center on indigenous and feminist pedagogies and methodologies yes yeah, so i could tell you that it wasn't something that started when i was an undergrad because my formation has always been in spanish literature and culture and for me that was because I wanted to make sure that I knew where I came from, specifically thinking about my parents being Mexican-born, uh, but growing up in the U.S. as adults. And also just being able to go back home to Mexico, because I, I used to live there for a couple of different moments in my life, especially my childhood. And I feel like being able to talk to my family was key. So that's why Spanish became like my the majors, right, that I um, was able to acquire when I was in undergrad and then the MA program. But when I was looking for the books for my first semester in Spanish for the master's program, I, I don't know why something told me, go look at other bookshelves and see what else you like. And that's where I encountered uh, Ansaldúa's Borderlands. And for me, it was like, oh, that, that sounds interesting. I've never, you know, heard of this book. Again, right, limited scope of, oh, yeah. you know, like uh, the field. So I, I skimmed through it and I'm like, why is she using Spanish with English? Like, who allowed her to do this, right? <laughs> First of all, kind of like ignorant she in, in the aspect. She, <laughs> she, she did herself. herself. <laughs> and for me, that was like, wow, she, you could do this. So I started reading some of her poems, and I was just like, I need to buy this book. And I did, right? I think it was 2014 or 13, one of those. And for me, that was just like the beginning of it, like coming to conscience of who I was and still keeping the Spanish major as like for the MA and then pursuing the PhD after. But I think her teachings through her her own text was like so important um, for me. And after when I was at UC Davis doing the PhD, again, I think that the research questions found me in, um, in a way that I feel like pushed me to not only think about my work, but also about my own personal journey as scholar of color and first gen also, but 
So start thinking about knowledge coming from the people living the experiences and not so much us as the scholars coming in and saying, here, this is what you should know. But it's actually the people teaching us. So that's where I focus mostly on like testimonial literature, um, authentic voices from the field. So people's knowledge about what they've experienced, specifically being a Chicana. Um, and kind of connecting my own experience and coming to knowledge about being proud of being a Mexican-American, but also a, a Chicana who is very active, like politically and mm -hmm. active in my activism and just kind of like not being silent about our experiences. So I think that's where the push for Chicanx studies came through and indigenous knowledges also and kind of like not only highlighting the voices, but treating them with care. And really mm -hmm. centering them because I think sometimes it's it's a good thing, right, to go into the field and do field work and learn from the people. But I think it's also important to center them and also bring them to the table when there's like presentations, um, media interviews as well, because it's not only about the scholar, but also the people informing the the knowledge that I'm now being able to bring back to academia. I like that. It's it's um, speaking with the people, not for the people. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So your academic journey includes uh, field work at the at the border at the Mexico U.S. border uh, in Tijuana, and specifically, uh, can you describe your experiences and observations during this field work and how it has influenced your perspective on migration? Yeah, so I think you know I oftentimes say it started in 2016, but it's actually way before because when I was a young girl, like migrating from. Um, LA to Jalisco, we would usually drive um, mm -hmm. because my parents love to drive, especially my dad. But it makes it easier to navigate Mexico with a car. And I realized that my dad being a brown man and like the look that he had at that moment back in the early 90s um, really pushed us all the time to be sent to secondary inspection. And I didn't know why you just grow up with that. Right. So it's mm -hmm. like you're crossing back from Mexico to the U.S. And and those Things that we experienced also pushed me to start thinking more about like, oh, we're different. Mm -hmm. Even if I was born in the U.S. because crossing back, it was just like, yeah, you present your high school ID, right? Or your middle school ID because back in the day, I didn't have to carry all of my <laughs> documents to prove that I was born here. But it, it allows you to start experimenting crossing the border in a whole different way that I think maybe people who don't have uh, those experiences don't think about it. But mm -hmm. for, for us, it was that, right? Like, don't say the wrong thing and like just perform um, mm -hmm. the right way, right? Whichever way that wow. is. Yeah. Or don't bring anything perform back that you're not supposed to bring. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But now as an adult, having that kind of like experience as a, a young kid, for me, that was also, it added more questions about thinking about belonging, border walls, border fences, and the performance that those also have as monuments, right? As mm -hmm. a reminder of like the racist narratives that we have in the U.S. Mm -hmm. and excluding people that we don't want here. Yeah. And I think going in with those personal experiences and then also like learning from the people there really brought into the need to do more, right, mm -hmm. than just academic scholarship, but also informing the public of what I was bearing witness to because a lot of the times it was really horrible things, hearing people's testimonies and coming back to the U.S. and going on with like grad school mm -hmm. and I felt so guilty like depressed guilty like mm -hmm. all of these emotions bottled up and at the end of the day it was like well this is all you can do now just document these narratives and for me that was not enough and I think that's where the fields were really pushed me to do more 
um, in the sense of like bring the community with you and mm -hmm. speak about this. Yeah, talking about that, about like uh, uh, being in community, right? Can you tell us about your uh, digital storytelling mm -hmm. projects, right? And your mural projects mm -hmm. uh, as tools that you use and your community use to document contemporary migration processes? Yes. Yeah, so for me, digital humanities, I feel like since I was a little kid, I was always good with computers, the cell phone, like mm -hmm. at a young age. And I think for me, I would say technology and access to different stories, different um, issues is really key. Mm -hmm. And because I, I realized, right, so if people cannot go to the U.S.-Mexico border, how can they also know about these stories, right? So mm -hmm. very impactful for those that could see it in person, right, with the Plays de Tijuana Mural Project. They see the artwork. They could scan the QR codes. But what about everyone else who cannot go, right? Mm -hmm. Or how do I give back these same experiences in some capacity to the people who had DACA, And we're in the mural and couldn't even go, right, to see it from the Mexican side. Mm -hmm. And for me, that was important, like, access again to the stories that they themselves are sharing. Mm -hmm. So the Plaza Tijuana Mural Project came to mind in 2016, the moment mm -hmm. that I saw the Border Friends in Plaza Tijuana. And I saw a lot of artwork in this space called Friendship Park, but mm -hmm. nothing at the beach. And when I told my parents, especially my dad, I was like, hey, I'm going to go do this training in Tijuana for digital storytelling for Humanizando la Deportación. And he's like, oh, well, you know, I actually crossed through there multiple times. Some of your uncles did, too. And I was like, wait, you've never said this. And he's like, well, I mean, we never talk about it. Right. Yeah. So the silences in my own family, the secrets we don't talk about and their migration story, especially my mom. Like, we don't touch that subject as much. But my dad's like, yeah, we crossed through there, but it didn't look like this. So that's when I started looking, right, like photographic mm -hmm. memory of what this space looked like. And that's where I realized, wow, this border fence wasn't like this before. Mm -hmm. And how can we also do something at the beach to call in the stories that I was now learning about? So 2016, 2017, I do fields work in Tijuana. That's where I became more knowledgeable about who gets deported, right, and like the different profiles of childhood arrivals that were displaced out of the U.S. because they either had a criminal record, racial profiling, and mm -hmm. and all of that. So um, for me, technology became the the resource as not only digital narratives, but also the digital portraits, the muralism aspect, people painting their own portraits. Again, how do they want to represent themselves visually and not just orally? And inviting the public to feel what I was feeling because I was just kind of like, I use social media to communicate some scope of what I was um, witnessing at the border and people wanted to know more. And for me, again, it was a new issue, new topic, but it allowed me to answer different questions about why family members were deported, why certain family members couldn't come to the U.S. with a visa and like all mm -hmm. of these issues that it's not only catered to deportation, but again, centering the voices through mediums that people now recognize, right? Like scanning a QR code, yeah, sharing mm -hmm. online and social media. Can you give us like a, a specific examples of how those medium, digital mediums have impacted, yeah, the discussions, the things that you have seen like people talking about on on the internet, but mm -hmm. also per, perhaps on yeah, on, on out there in the in, in, uh, in the physical world, right? Oh yeah, and I I come back all all the time when you know I get asked this question about why media, why like digital tools. And I feel like oftentimes the misconception is that people migrating to Mexico, to the border, don't have phones or don't know mm -hmm. how to use cell phones. I'm like, yeah. people do know. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, I was working on a project called Migri Map. 
which came out of a need, you know, being there and realizing that a lot of people who were deported didn't have like the blueprint or like a manual letting them know, okay, the moment you feel now like you process what's going on with you and you're ready to like get your documents, the Mexican documents specifically, Mm -hmm. like what do you have to do? Mm-hmm. So that became one of the, the things that pulled me into like, okay, we need to do a guide or something that people could access digitally on their phones because people have phones, right? Yeah, and right. like, it might be limited access to, to internet and things like that, but they do have phones because that's the best way for them to be in contact with their family and let them know what's mm-hmm. going on with them. Or they find, you know, um, internet. So that project, obviously, with the guiding migrants in how to access resources, also provided resources for people migrating to um, the border and knowing where the shelters were specifically for women, children, men, and like resources for them to eat and things like that. But again, it's because there's misconceptions of who's migrating, right? We always Mm -hmm. think it's people who are extremely poor, which could be the case, but they do have the resources to navigate. A lot of them, through their own story sharing on social media, allow others to understand what they could go through as well. So I think it's that knowledge that gets um, shared differently. Yeah. So for me, it's, yes, the knowledge through this other project, um, but then also with the Playa de Tijuana, more people started learning about the stories. Yeah. So it, on, it only wasn't for scholars who had access to Manizando la Deportación because they either knew about it because of public presentations or they just came across um, the project, but... It also allowed for other people who might never know about migration and deportation yeah. to understand. And then also for the storytellers to feel empowered to say someone else is listening and cares about my story. It's not a forgotten um, testimony or experience, but you have not only the person who helped facilitate the narrative, but then now a larger audience. Yeah. So something that's really interesting to me also is that we host these narratives on YouTube. Yeah. Just because it's easier and it's free, right? So yeah. again, accessible. Accessible, right? Yeah. And then you have um, more reach that way. So there was a moment where we had to update all of the previously, like, the first set of narratives that were created in Tijuana. That meant that a lot of the narratives had to be taken down and re-uploaded. So some of mm-hmm. them had more than, like, 300 views already by that time. Yeah. So we had storytellers reaching out, like, hey, what happened to my view counts? Yeah. Right? Because yeah, they yeah, were yeah. looking at how many people were accessing their stories. So I think for them it was also, like, this amount of people have heard my testimony. They know what happened yeah. to... And I know one of them was, like, Isaac, what happened to Hector, like, mm-hmm. things like that. So it's not only a number that we see in statistics, but the personal story and, and again, I feel like the digital aspect of like a narrative now that lives outside just the Tijuana or uh, U.S.-Mexico yeah. border, it could live inside a classroom. People yeah. could write about it. People could express different things with that one narrative. So, yeah. mm-hmm. And it's something that mm-hmm. gets lost in mainstream media because oh, mainstream yeah. media covers like the tragedies at the border, mm-hmm. the, the violence at the border, policy. Uh, but for the most part, those individual stories get lost yeah, in the conversation. And that's actually what we need more of mm-hmm. that. Exactly. It's easier, right, to say, well, let's listen to the ones who have the credit, right, or the credibility, the journalists. But again, Mm -hmm. the personal voice, it's often forgotten. So you're talking about these stories and, and, and also the data together, you know, looking at the deportation of childhood arrivals and asylum seekers in the U.S., it's a, a fundamental issue in the 21st century across administrations. Could you share maybe some of the challenges and complexities faced by these children and what kind of policy changes or solutions you might advocate for in this context? 
Yes, I think that's an important question always to ask, right? Because yes, there is power in story sharing, but again, it's push it to the political aspect, right? Of like changing laws or adding new laws. So I think in the case for U.S. child arrivals, so it's basically people who migrated to the U.S. as minors, babies, infants. Um, that means that they either came undocumented, uh, held a permanent residency status, or overstayed their visa. So it, different aspects, right? So mm -hmm. again, everyone who's a non-citizen raised in the U.S. And I could tell you the story of one person, and I'll mention two specifically. So one of them is Jorge, who's actually the person who inspired me going into this field, migration studies, and thinking more about what happens to U.S. child arrivals and who are um, in some sense, the real U.S. child arrivals, because a lot of the times the conversation is always centered on documented individuals. So people who we recognize as the dreamers, undocumented youth, but never really thinking beyond what happened to those that were deported before DACA was implemented, before 2012. And this is where Jorge's story comes in. He was brought to the U.S. by his mom when he was eight months old. And then Eventually, when he was 18, he was questioned for a crime that happened in his neighborhood in California. And the cops automatically, he didn't have anything to do with it, but just because of how he looked, right? So racial profiling of a brown Latino male and the way that he dressed, right? So L.A. style. So whatever that looks like in your head, but that's how he dressed. And again, he had nothing to do with this crime that he was questioned for. But the fact that he was undocumented allowed for immigration and to deport him to Tijuana. So again, he came in when he was eight months old. It doesn't mean that he knows Spanish. It doesn't mean that he has family back in, first of all, in Baja California and Tijuana. So automatically, and the most organic thing to do is to come back to the U.S. because again, he wasn't only just racially profiled in the U.S., but also in Mexico because straight out, they knew he wasn't from there. So what do you do? You don't speak the language, you come back. So he came back to the U.S. and now lived in Alabama, again, racial profiled. But by then, he had two, two children deported. So before the deportation happened, the judge told him, well, I understand that you came in as an infant. You have no criminal record, but we can't do anything for you. There's nothing we can do. So an immigration judge said that to him. So what happened? Banned for 10 years and still waiting to see what's going to happen. So, again, I feel like the the law doesn't consider the fact that a lot of these kids were brought in, and now adults, right, were brought in when they were children, but they don't facilitate any type of, like, adjustment of status because they were undocumented or received a visa. So that aspect is criminalized mm -hmm. for right. them. The fact that they were brought in unauthorized. Mm -hmm. But then I also question, well, what happens when... So this is another story of Chris Patino. He was migrating with his family from Jalisco to Tijuana to come into the U.S., but uh, unfortunately his mom passes away at the border. And then there's an orphanage that takes in the family with the dad and the kids. And there was a, a couple, um, a white couple that says, you know what, we, we'll help. We'll adopt the kids. The dad takes some money to allow for this to happen. So basically, the kids were bought off and then brought into the U.S. to Sacramento, California by this white Anglo family or couple, we could say. Eventually, the mom doesn't want the kids anymore. Oh, says, God. Let's, let's split. There's a divorce. And again, Chris in his story mentions this all the time. He says, well, I'm asking my stepdad, can you please like adjust my status? I want to do these things, right? Like go to school or like apply for jobs and like mm -hmm. have a fulfilling, dignified life in the U.S. because he had no choice in this, right? Like 
adults make these choices for the kids. Right. So what happens is that, again, racial profiled. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chris had called the police um, to just basically get help in a crime that he was being affected. So he was a victim of a crime. The police automatically see him, indigenous, brown man. Oh, it must be him. So they take him and gets deported, come back again, has a daughter, gets deported again for the same reason. So mm-hmm. you see these cycles, right, that are not just um, in a way punishing a certain group, but you, you're punishing people who had no say in anything, adjusting their status or didn't know, for example, in, in Jorge's case, the repercussions of knowing he was born in Mexico but not being able to adjust his status. Like, he didn't understand what that meant because when you're in school, K-12, through no one's asking you, like, what's your status? You're not going to be forbidden to enter a classroom because you're undocumented, right? So they're in this really soft space of, like, okay, right now, meanwhile, you're in high school or K-12, through you're okay. Once you're out, that's when they start realizing the implications of their um, status or lack of status. So I think for me, it's, like, the law needs to adjust to these lived experiences and and not worry about if they had a criminal record or not because at the end of the day that criminal record was created in the u.s not in their countries of birth right it's something that we as a country made possible so for me it's really important to acknowledge just the fact that we should have relief for anyone who was a u.s child arrival regardless if they went to high school after or um, college enlisted in the military, the fact is that they were brought in as children and that should be enough um, to provide some um, remedy to their status, but then also consider those who were previously deported. So it's not just, oh, well, we're start we're gonna start after Obama implemented DACA, it's like before that, mm-hmm. because there, those were kids that were brought in in, their, in the 90s and we should you know, consider that as well. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah, you have talked about the criminalization, yeah, of... Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, of these uh, young men and uh, also the punishment, mm-hmm. right? And I wanted to ask you also about what connection have you identified between the expansion of the prison industrial complex, especially uh, since the mm-hmm. 90s uh, in the US and immigration policy, thinking about the, the, the increasing numbers in detention center, for example. Uh, yeah, so it's a business at the mm-hmm. end of the day um, and I could, bring it back all to migration is a business. Um, mm-hmm. We could say the business, since the border wall, right, the business became the coyote, right, the smuggler, because migrants are always going to find a way to come in because it's mm-hmm. it's what they're going to do, period, yeah. right? So the prison industrial complex, again, it's also a business. We need detention centers. We need the prison to fund Right. This idea that we're securing our borders, that we're doing what we need to do to secure our community. So it's a business where people, unfortunately, people of color are being taken advantage of. Right. So, again, there's another story by Javier Salazar, who goes on by a deported veteran, um, deported artist, I mean. And in his story, he talks about how he was deported from Oakland, from the Oakland airport. But the way that they did it, it's like they didn't take you through the airport as just anyone traveling. Right. Instead, they would do it in a, in a way that would hide that they were deporting people from Oakland to Mexico. Mm-hmm. So they would take them, um, we could call them prisoners because that's how they were treated, right? They were mm-hmm. like in yeah. handcuffs and, and all of that. And they're taken in the backside of the airport and then put on the airplane then with everyone else. So again, we're hiding these things, but make we make them visible when we need to, right? So we say in California specifically where I was raised, 
there's this idea that we have more, there was more prisons created than schools um, along the 99. And mm -hmm. I think that also allows us to see how this became a huge boom in saying, well, the prison, the high school to prison pipeline exists. We need more prisons to hold all these brown people. Yeah. And I mean, we're not going to come out and say like that in policy, right? Like this is what it is. But again, who gets affected by this? And we see it again with recruiters going to heavy Latino communities where they try to make sure that brown boys specifically enlist in the military with the promise of them becoming citizens. Yeah. And again, to enlist, you have to be a permanent resident. But again, this idea of like, well, I was raised in the U.S. I should have this opportunity to um, become a citizen and the military becomes a pathway. So when these things don't work, then where do we put all of these people that we don't want, right? And when we can't support them. So that's where you see the um, the prison, right, as one of the, that houses people. And there's a, actually someone else that I met in Tijuana. His name is Angel. And he says that he felt that he was just like a cash cow, meaning that, yes, his family was willing to pay anything that they needed to to pay for the lawyers and to make sure that he was given the opportunity to fight his case outside the prison, right, or detention centers because he was he navigated this, the different um, carceral state. And he says, you know, I eventually told my family, no, like, I can't do this. It's unfair that you're paying thousands of dollars for something that's inedible. Like, I'm going to get deported regardless because I'm undocumented and I did something wrong. And th that's my punishment. So owning up to that. But again, you see this, right? It's like taking from the communities that are already being affected, money. And we see the, the prison. We could close one detention center, but another one's going to open up. Right. Three or more. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's usually like that. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. You recently moved to New York from California. Mm -hmm. uh, what have been your observations about the official discourse about migrants in the city? Uh, specifically, how the, the official discourse these days about the migrants as, uh, as a problem for the city, in the mm -hmm. city, and, as, uh, and of course, an economic waste. Yeah. Uh, that is like depressing the city. Yeah. And and thinking about that also about yeah. the discourse and how like the politicians are framing uh, the migrant wave, the current migrant wave mm -hmm. to the city. What type of services should the city invest in supporting the mm -hmm. current migration wave? Yeah, it's, it's so interesting to see it. And not just only from like coming from California, but thinking about the border, right? So the mm -hmm. busing of migrants to different cities. So not them only staying in, in Texas, right? So having them now navigate states like um, Chicago, right? Or like cities like Chicago or like New York City, LA, San Diego, like all of them being impacted by, you know, buses coming into the city and then, then having the city having to figure out how to accommodate for them. In New York City, we do hear, right, it's like 10,000 a month coming to the city. And then at the beginning, you know, I feel like the mayor was like, okay, yes, come, we'll, we'll figure it out. But now that we've reached capacity, at least that's the narrative that they're sharing through the media. And then just people that live in the city, the way that they document these stories, so like on TikTok and social media, kind of like saying these are our tax dollars, you know, being wasted on people that shouldn't be here. But... What they don't recognize is a lot of these people have the authority to be here because they're seeking asylum. So, mm -hmm. right. So first of all, it's a human right. It's a legal thing to do. So they're not here illegally, like the word that they love to use and toss around. Mm -hmm. 
they're doing this the legal way. The fact is that people were misinformed during the Trump era, thinking that having migrants wait in Mexico seemed like the best way to deal with the issue and not in the interior, using COVID as a way to kind of like keep people out and just face the not only the dangers in Mexico, but also kind of have them wait enough for them to kind of give up. And it diminished their yes. legal opportunities uh, yeah. within the U.S. Exactly. Uh, when you're uh, stuck in, in Mexico, uh, there's no way to really uh, have access to the legal services you need to uh, to have a, like a, a, a successful case. asylum case. Uh -huh. Exactly. So I think people, first of all, are misinformed about how asylum seeking works. Right. So and again, it's because we're not informed about it. The news are not really talking about it mm -hmm. the way that it should be like educating people. And we're not going to go ahead and unfortunately, people won't go and get educated themselves, even though we have access to like Googling, right, mm -hmm. what asylum seeking looks like. But again, in the city, what I realized and I'm only I've only been here now, it's going to be three months. But just being on the train and walking um, by the Roosevelt Hotel, I realized, wow, it's not only first of all, it's not only Mexicans coming. Right. It's people from Central America, from different parts of the world seeking asylum. And the fact is that they're being bused to New York. And one of the things that I realized is that people don't want to be a burden, quote unquote, to the government or to the city. They want to have access to be able to work. And when we don't give them a, a work permit, what do they do? They find other ways to bring money to their families. Right. To be able to sustain themselves um, on their yeah. own. So. A lot of them do rent out the bikes, the motorbikes that we do see in the city. Yeah. Um, they, I've heard from some people saying that they also pay a friend a fee and then they allow them to use like their Instacart and like Uber mm -hmm. Eats um, mm -hmm. membership to be able to like deliver food. So again, migrants are people and just people in itself. They're people who are going to find a way to make ends yeah. meet. But unfortunately, what's happening with the city is that now we're cutting how long they can stay in, in shelters. Yeah. So instead of having the original, I think it was like 60 days. Now they only have 30. Right. And it doesn't matter. So it's kind of like we're trying to cut the resources because we want more money from the federal government. And then people in the city don't want them where they're visible. So it reminds me a lot of like Tijuana. Again, people don't want to make, make the uh, tourist feel like they shouldn't come to the to the city because it mm -hmm. makes us look bad, right? Especially, I remember when the Roosevelt opened, people would say, well, why is that in the in the middle, right? Why is it in Manhattan? Like, why is it not somewhere else? Yeah. They didn't want them to be so visible, but unfortunately, it has to be this way. Um, so I think there's a lot of narratives that are constructing this narrative, like either it's them or us. And I see this a lot more in Chicago as I'm following the news where people are like, expressing how they don't have money for even their own veterans, the housing issue in the city. But then we're funding migrants. So people are saying, it's not like we don't want them here. We also worry about them and their well-being, but we come first. Mm -hmm. So there's always this idea of like, if there's resources, then it should be given to, right? Like there's like a pyramid, citizens, and then like everyone else at the bottom. Yeah. So that's where migrants are being put once they're in the interior of the U.S. And... It's something that I, I see the same thing in the, at the border, right? But again, it's because we're not focusing on the issue here. It's like if we have, so you asked, what can we do as a solution? Well, if we have money, right, to fund wars and conflicts, mm -hmm. why don't, you know, why don't we also fund for more um, immigration or asylum judges 
more resources that provide a dignified way for people to navigate the asylum-seeking process, make it faster, give them work permits, right? Um, those are two things to do. But then also educate people who are seeking asylum to have everything they need to make sure their case is going to be successful. Because unfortunately, if it's not, then you are sent back. And then you have to do everything again if you make it out of your home country again. So there's ways to do it. We just don't we're not funding the right things, right? Instead, we're investing more on adding more to the U.S.-Mexico border, funding wars. The militarization. The yeah. militarization of the border yeah. as well, but not this, right? If we're going to call it a humanitarian crisis, why are we not helping people out? Yeah, one yeah. very concrete thing also would be to have uh, resources for translators, Yes, right? that's something exactly. that is uh, missing yeah, many times. Translators right? in different languages. Yeah. Um, because I and think indigenous languages. Exactly. We were talking about indigenous yes. communities mm -hmm. yeah, from uh, Mexico, Central America. And we need a yeah, translator from those languages as yeah. well. Right? And people that understand the process of just the paper. And something that I've learned by listening to the archive in Humanizando la Deportación is that a lot of people from Haiti, for example, that were at the southern border of Mexico, so like Tapachula area. They had everything they needed, right, um, to uh, apply for asylum. But what happened is that the Mexican government was issuing a document that asked for their last name first and then their first name. So for some reason, they didn't understand the, dif the difference because it was given to them in a foreign language, right? And they misplaced, so it was vice versa. They put their first name where the last name should go and, you know, And that just dismissed them. So again, like you said, we need access to different languages, people who are experts in the language, not just written form. And they need to know the context, the cultural context of this, because then we're doing a disservice to the people that, that need it. So shifting a little bit, you are quite active on social media and you've talked a little bit already about how it's a, it can be a tool for engaging people, critically engaging people with the humanitarian crisis on the border. But we were wondering, like, In what ways does social media and that sort of thing add nuance to the discourse on the subject? And how might it fall short of, you know, transforming policies and individual perspectives? Yeah, so I think, and I could say for me, social media, even when I, I had social media before grad school, but it was more like my personal archive of like documenting my personal life. But once I started grad school, I felt like the need that Humanizando Reportación gave to me, right? I like, You have access to the space. You have access to the stories and to people. So use this platform, right, to, like, not educate, but share. I think just the fact that take a photo, explain what's going on, or a short video and, like, let people know what's going on and kind of, like, follow that. So I think social media does provide that lens, right, of, like, showcasing what you are experiencing and then finding ways to make sure that it's an ethical way to represent it, right? To not put yourself in the middle because I think a lot of times the social media, we like to talk about ourselves first, mm -hmm. right? And I think it's the normal reaction, but I think it's like a skill to learn not to do that because like, even right now with what's going on in the world, like for me, it's just like, let's bring it back to like the people being affected, And it's valid that we feel this way, but let's not forget about who needs it more than we do. Because there's a lot of vicarious trauma, so that's something that I also um, experienced um, being in the field. But then you you realize, right, that it's beyond you, the what's going on. And I think the moment that you realize that's where social media becomes a tool to transform people's minds. And 
I don't want to say educate them, but provide them the tools, the readings, the stories that they should be hearing to kind of like demystify what migration looks like. Why don't people just stand in line and become citizens, right? Why is it that the DACA students, which people like to call them, it's not just DACA students, right? But like those terms that I kept hearing when I was doing presentations about this work, people asking me, well, why don't they just legalize themselves? Like if it was easy, right? Like if people could just go stand somewhere in a line and just say, here, I was just not coming to this line because I didn't want to. It's like, <laughs> for me, it's just that, right? Yeah, even when it's su- uh, successful, it takes yeah. years and years. Years. Right. Yeah. And and I remember when I traveled with the, the last group of DACA um, folks or like the dreamers that went to um, uh, Colegio de la Frontera Norte en Tijuana, that was when Trump came in, right? And I was fortunate enough to be invited to that. And just listening to their stories and kind of like them having the power and to educate other people and using social media to document to say, I came to Mexico with advanced parole, right? Because a lot of people say, well, why don't you just go back to your country and like figure it out? They don't want to live there. They have the, there's also this idea of like, they should also be given the opportunity to select where they want to live. And it shouldn't just be exclusive to Mexico, for example, or the the US. They sh- we should be able to like navigate borders because they exist the way that we want to, right? To have a fulfilling life. But again, there's this conception that people think that, oh, DACA means you have citizenship, but it doesn't, right? It's something that you have to um, apply for every year and qualify. So you could fall out on DACA, but people don't know that, right? Because we don't want to hear the not successful stories. So that's where I wanted to come in with my work in, yes, highlighting the, the beautiful stories of people who have endured so much and have made a life in the U.S., but then also bring back this conversation of who we are excluding through social media. So for me, even through my work, I try to highlight the stories of people who did have a criminal record, right? Like why us in the movement, pro-immigrant rights, also exclude people who did have a criminal record or unfortunately had to navigate an unfortunate moment and then that provoked a deportation. So for me, social media became that. And, and it's also something for me to keep myself accountable for what I've done in the past and to continue doing that because I think it's so easy as I'm advancing in my that moment in grad school and then now finishing the PhD, I don't want to become comfortable and say, well, I'm done, right? I, right? I got my degree and now watch just my academic journey. It's like, no, I still need to continue this work because now you have more of an obligation because you, I'm carrying these stories with me. You're aware now. <laughs> oh, very aware. And I always think about this, right? You cannot unsee what you've seen and felt, mm-hmm. right? And I don't like the white savior complex idea. So that's where I come in with their stories, right? And like try to make it ethical for all of us together through the different social medias because it's not just only my personal profile, like on Instagram. Like I have the mural project, the documented, and I co direct another one to leave no one behind. So all of these different mediums to communicate to people who might not know what's going on. But again, not centering it on on myself. Right. And to kind of answer the second one, the problem with social media is that it makes you feel like by liking a photo, sharing it, or sharing a short video, you've done your work. And it shouldn't be like that. Like, that's why I feel what the QR codes and it's something that I, I push for so much in my own project. It's like, yes, scan the QR code. It's a great step. Scan it. Hear the story. View the, the photos, the slides, right, that people are showing with you about their life. Share it with your network. But not just share it, like, on Facebook and say, oh, you know, this is how it made me feel. I didn't know this was happening. But, like, find lawyers. 
find people who are providing mental health services, connect people to resources, right? Because we can't expect the one person to do everything, right? And that's the limiting aspect of social media. Like numbers, we always go by stats, right? And numbers, and they don't mean anything. At the end of the day, if people are still being supported, if people, people can't come action back. And making, helping make change. Yeah. In what ways they're, like they do have more power than maybe they think. Oh, we all do. We all do. And what I've seen, the power of the the projects that I've done and the social media activism that we could say is that, yes, we have had a certain group of deported child arrivals come back, but it's the deported veterans. But everyone else, again, forgotten, mm-hmm. right? Because we always try to say, well, it's either them or this other group, but not everyone. So, again, we become, uh, we set our own criteria of who deserves Again, like who deserves? You have to die for this country to deserve to come back. Yeah. Who? Yeah. I mean, that's that's some serious truth there. Yeah. <laughs> so here at Latinx Visions, we're really big fans of public knowledge, obviously as a podcast, um, and open source pedagogical tools. So this is something that we've noticed that you're doing, not just in these outside projects, but also with your Baruch students currently. So can you elaborate on that a little bit further? Um, Maybe perhaps as it relates to your project on Corridos. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I love that project. And I'm really excited for it. So for both classes that I'm teaching, so I'm teaching the Capstone and the Latinas course. And being a Latina who loves Corridos, you know, I grew up listening to Corridos, um, different genres and like from, from Mexico, right? So not just like rancheras and, you know, ballads like that. But I listened to Banda growing up because where my dad's from, every August they have a celebration for the Virgin there, La Virgen de la Asunción. And for me, that was just like growing up, it was a natural thing. And I knew it happened in Mexico, not so much in the U.S. But I grew up listening to that type of music. But I'm like, where are the women singers, right? Like, not, I don't want to just see my aunt and my mom singing, but like, where are the professional singers at? So never, right? It's a handful of them. But then with the corridos, the same thing. And if they do sing, they're super hypersexualized. Uh-huh. Hugely, right? So I, I brought that into conversation with my students. I'm like, the reason why I'm having you do corridos is not just because I want to like test your abilities to write music, right? But it's just lyrics that they're writing and making um, a lyric video at the end, right? Because I want them to also choose like a, a tone of music, like the the sound to give me an idea of like how the lyrics should be listened to versus just me reading them, kind of like finding the the tune for it. So my students then realized that, well, she wants us to not only like really understand the story of a Latina in the U.S., right? Someone that we either learned or someone in their own network or just make a fictionalized version of a Latina that they want to like highlight. And for me, it's because I see them as all my students are knowledge creators. So kind of like giving an opportunity to not just only consume cultural materials, but to also produce that. And for at the end of this class to say, well, I did this project. Right. Like I had to read about corridos, the genre, uh, listen to experts talk about it. So like guest speakers talk about their own journey and writing music and listening to music that maybe they've never encountered in their life. So in my class of 35, I only had like maybe two or three students who had listened to a corrido before. And then everyone else never. And they couldn't even say corrido. So so that was a that, super interesting for me, <laughs> you know. Um, but it's that right. Kind of like giving them the tools to say we could write an essay about it, but I would rather have you produce a corrido to see that it's not an easy task, right? So kind of breaking it down to like how it starts, the middle and the end. And like it has to leave you with a message and it depends on you. 
So it became that. So in the Latinas course, writing about corridos of Latinas to kind of give back to this idea that there's no corridos about mujeres. They are, but selective, right? And in the other course, a capstone course for the majors, I'm having them do children's books. And for me, it's something that I'm working on myself as well. One of the um, authors with the Javier Salazar. And for me, it's just kind of like, how do I set time apart to also work on my children's book that I'm collaborating on with my students? So kind of like working together, right? So they're creating their children's books, um, audiobook option for those who don't feel comfortable in illustrating, right? But I also give them the option, find a friend who knows how to draw and collaborate, right? So there's also that. And for them, it's just kind of like, how do we talk about migration for children? That is a complex part. So it has to be centered on migration. And it has to be a 32-page layout. Frame it however you want, but see different examples. So we've done different activities for that. And they heard from a storyteller also who has her own children's books talking about her mom's deportation. So until someone listens by Estela Juarez. And for them, it's just like, we can't believe she's only 14 and she wrote this book when she was like 12. So that for them was just like, and we're struggling here, you know, kind of thing. But again, giving them the tools to think beyond the box, right beyond the paper and to say, here's a story I want to tell and this is how I'm going to do it with keeping in mind a children's audience or so like young adult audience with a children's book. And to think about a children's book, it might seem like an accessible format, but it's complex too. As a woman of color and a first generation scholar and activist, what advice do you have for students, especially Latinas, right, who are considering working towards a higher degree? Yeah, I feel like there's, <laughs> I always bring it back to social media because I'm on it so much, but there's on TikTok like this audio, like, what would you tell your younger self? Mm -hmm. And for me, it's like, I wouldn't tell her anything, right? Because I had to go through everything the way that I did and like the struggles and everything be to be here. Because I feel like if someone would have told me like, do this this way, then I probably would have done something different because I would have felt <laughs> more. that's how we all go. <laughs> yeah, because I, I feel like I would have felt more empowered to say everything's gonna be fine i just have to like continue but i feel like not knowing how things were gonna look the next after the next step that i would take right and kind of like not having the support that i needed pushed me to find the resources on my own unfortunately it's a sad journey to think about like well you don't have like a mentor like a female mentor telling you do this right or or do that so i kind of paid my own way in that, but I think what helped me a lot was having my family support, regardless if they didn't understand what higher ed was or why I wanted to go to school. Or like my sister would say, you're still going to school? Like, or after I graduated from the PhD, she's like, that's it, right? You're no, no more school. And it's kind of like, I'm learning and they're learning from my own experience, right? But I think for, for other Latinas, it's just like, keep going, regardless if people don't believe in you, because that was my, my case, right? Like, People would see me and just like, oh, she's not going to go to high school. When I was in high school in Fresno um, at Hoover High, counselors didn't, you know, want to write those letters of rec or provide that letter to get me into these programs to prep for college. They're like, well, why would you want to go to higher ed kind of thing? So I think having all of those barriers, but then having those teachers that did believe in me, right? So I'm not saying everyone was like against it, but it's just like those people planted those seeds and I'm like well I could see myself there right so I've always been an educator but I feel like if someone would have told me do this do that then I probably would have followed a whole different journey right or maybe would have wanted to do things that they did 
But something that a lot, and something that Latinas did tell me once I became more, I would say, vocal about my story when I was doing the masters was, um, these were Latinas who were hyper professionalized in the business world and tech and like healthcare, and I got to meet them through the Hope Latinas Network, mm-hmm. and because I did have a mentor who took me to these spaces to say you could be this, you could be that, figure out what you want to do. So having someone take me to things. Um, beyond just, you know, to say, I want to be a teacher, right? Like, because I've always wanted to be a teacher, but I'm like, what type of teacher? That was a question. And for them, it was just like, keep doing what you want to do. Like, don't settle. That was their their biggest consejo, like, don't Mm -hmm. settle. And I was just like, they're like, I'm happy with my life. For them, it was just having children, right? That was the thing that pushed them away from their aspirations in higher ed or doing a PhD. And they're like, they're not telling me not to have children, but they're like, if you do, make sure you have a supportive partner. That's what they would say. So growing up, I'm like, okay, if you want to be a go-getter type of Latina, you're going to face even more obstacles because you're not settling into the traditional way women should be, especially coming from a Mexican background, right? So I think of that, right? So I think in my family, I'm the only, am I the only one? I think I am, well, my sister too, but from my mom's side, I think we're the only ones that are of age to get married, not married yet, no kids. So kind of having that, and we're the ones who have a professional career. So it's like navigating, like, when are you going to have kids, right? And, like, why are you going to school so much? Why are you traveling so much? Where do you live now kind of thing, you know what I mean? Or or my family, like, from my dad's side asking, why did you move to New- Why are you going to move to New York? Why is it so far away from your family? So being the one to say, you know what, I'm going to try things for the first time. Because my dad was that for his family. The one to say, he's the oldest one of 13, let's go to the U.S., right? Because we need to make our family have a different life. So I think having those examples, but my parents never told me, go to school, do your homework. Never. You know what I mean? They were never those type of parents, like helicopter parents. So I think having the liberty, even in grad school, to do what I wanted to do, knowing that there's barriers, just pushed me to say, well, let me be creative of how I want to do life. And I think that was helpful for me. But I think at the end of the day, it's just, I mean, if I would say something, because I think not saying nothing, también es como like a disservice, (laughs) right? But I think it's just like, believe in yourself every step of the way, because there's going to be so much opposition, like barriers, not just systemic barriers where people like that you feel should be supportive of you and they're not. And that's just how it is. You know, it's just kind of like, as long as you're proud and comfortable with what you're doing, you should be good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you envision as a future for yourself and other Chicana students, mm. activists, academics, or other yeah. people that you well, that's a cool question. care about? <laughs> yeah, I think for us to, to like not get stuck in this idea of like imposter syndrome, right? Um, I think I'm thankful that I got over that once I was doing the mural project because I think it gave me like the sense of like I'm a Chicana I'm a first gen in a program that was very like you know treated me like an outsider in my grad program but it's just like proving people wrong became my thing yeah. <laughs> on, you know like in a way without like making it like my sole mission but it was just kind of like you see a Mexican American in grad school and you're like oh she's gonna get out and I was, right? Pero dije, no, like, I'm getting these awards, I'm going to stay. So I stayed. But I think it's it's so easy for us to, to say, well, if I'm being pushed out, 
where do I find a space for myself? So I think in, let's say, like the next five, 10 years, I want to create that space, right? For it could be in a digital way or it could be having like a center, right? Or multi-campus center that really pushes for first-gen Latinas and hopefully Chicanas to think of themselves as like, we have a space, like a physical space that we could call like our hub or a media, like social media space where we could say, you know what, like there's going to be someone that I could ask these questions to, right? Mm-hmm. Like how to navigate moving away from home, how to apply for jobs, how to apply for grants. And like, first of all, seeing yourself as like the PI of a project, not just the the researcher, right? Like we deserve to have spaces that do have some type of like power to influence other generations. So I think for me, it's it's that seeking that, right? But again, it's there's no blueprint that I'm, I could follow. There's not a book that I could read about. Like another professor that went through what I'm going through now, being a first gen tenure track, right? And I like seen like, oh, year one, you have to do this, right? Year two and like moving forward. But it's just kind of like finding it to fit you. So I think for me, it's yeah. just like, you know, it's like you have to be the one being honest to a certain extent of how this experience looks like and hopefully inspire other women to feel like, you know what, that one girl went somewhere far away from her family. and She's OK. She's happy. Yeah. And, and it's happening on social media. Right. I have people reach out and that's how I'm growing my network of friendships here in New York, yeah. because I've shared it on like on TikTok and people have reached out like, hey, let's go get coffee or do some Mexican cultural thing, you know? <laughs> so it's kind of that because there's value in you telling your story and other people connect with it. So like to not prevent yourself from letting people know who you are and be vulnerable, I would say. Mm-hmm. So I think in the future, that's what I want, just to kind of like keep that openness, right? And keep growing because I think a lot of times, yeah, it's beautiful right now, but it could get hard eventually, right? Because life could happen, homesickness and things like that. But as long as I'm creating a good foundation, I should be okay. And that would allow me to have my cup as full as I can to help others and support others, especially students here at the school, which I see them with my students now. They don't have to be Latinos or Chicanas to feel connected to to what I'm doing here. And I, right. and I noticed that. I'm like, okay, even the boys, right? So it's kind of like they see like just the ambition to grow as a person and to take unknown steps into something that they believe. Wow. Well, uh, thank you so much for joining us here today, Liz. Uh, But before we wrap up, is there anything you want to plug? Also, where can our listeners find you and your work? That sort of thing. Yeah. So I'm kind of following the line of like Baruch College, right? So next semester, I'm teaching two courses, the the U.S.-Mexico border relations and then the U.S. Latinos communities. And I'm really excited for those classes because that's my my field of study, right? I'm very passionate about it. And something that I'm going to try for the first time is do a teaching with both classes in May. I think it's May 3rd or 2nd, one of those. And students having the opportunity to paint portraits that will go on the U.S.-Mexico border. So going to be added to the Plaza Tijuana Mural Project. So Yes, they're going to be learning about migration in the U.S., migration related to the border, but also having the opportunity to paint something that will be placed at the border. So kind of like connecting it to the projects that I do and bringing them to be a part of this community as well. So that's really important for me and just kind of like for the students to see why the arts are a powerful tool to use as well, besides reading about these topics. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And Lisbeth de Santana on all social media. Awesome. Awesome. So follow her. I thank you. <laughs> thank you. Muchas gracias. 
So Rojo, what did you think about that conversation with Lisbeth? Yeah, it was great thinking with Lisbeth on digital storytelling practices as a way to create a counter narrative to the criminalization of migrants. Additionally, I appreciate her views on social media as a person who is uh, um, hesitant about the role of social media in our lives. Uh, but I really like the way she framed it as a way of creating a network of legal resources for those fighting their cases in immigration court or dealing with daily challenges in a new city. Yeah, it's um, it's interesting because that was one of our like my concerns when I was asking is like, okay, so there are pluses to social media and minuses. And so how do you navigate that? And I think mm -hmm. she does a really great job of that. I think the ways in which she's engaging students to not only learn about like these real world issues, but actually being producers of knowledge, like that's so important, right? I mean, they're able to see real world applications of the content they're learning about and have an actual impact on the wider understanding of these topics. Like we can analyze all day, but putting things into practice is the next step. And having opportunities to do so is important. And she really seems to guide the students in that. Uh, I also like that her advice for future Latina scholars is so open, right? There's no right or wrong answer, but instead it's about keeping yourself open, being yourself, mm -hmm. taking risks, and understanding that you, you can't always know what comes next, and that's okay. Yeah, you have to create your own journey. Yeah. So thanks for joining us for this episode. Remember, you too can share your thoughts with us. You can always reach out to us on social media or by email. Follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at Latin Exhibitions. Our email address is latinexhibitions at gmail.com. We love to include your thoughts in a future episode. Even if you call it X now. <laughs> <laughs> Subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Share us with your friends and family. Subscribe and leave a five-star review to help us with that pesky algorithm. This is our last episode of the semester of this season. So uh, we'll be back. So take care, everybody. Estamos a la escucha. Dale. Until next season. Bye.